All right, y'all, we are contrary to um, earlier statements said last week, but I don't know who it was. We are going to continue with a commandment this week. We're going to go with the eighth commandment after the stunning seventh commandment. I hope everybody has recovered. I'm still getting texts uh, and emails and conversations about the last commandment. Um, We had a good uh, discussion of it in CE this morning as well. Um, In the following, uh, when we get back after the holidays, there's going to be a Intro to Redeemer class, those of you that are investigating Redeemer, still wanting to figure out some more insider knowledge about what's going on with this church, where's this church headed, where do we believe, and why do we believe that God has Redeemer here in Waco, what are we called to participate in God's redemptive mission here in Waco and beyond, Uh, that would be a great class. Uh, Shaner Newsom, the RUF campus minister, is going to be teaching the other adult CE class. And then I, when, when this class, the founders class is done, the foundations class is done, we'll co-teach. And that seems to be a, a, a good combination of having us together. Uh, Scott Cunningham is going to continue the um, community group leaders training. If you're thinking at all about opening your home and you don't even know how you want to go about it or how doing it, but you know you want to You want to connect with people in the church and learn to connect as a church to people outside the church. That's the place for you. Go go to that class. Uh, It was a great class last fall. A number of new leaders are going forward. This is a, a significant way in which God has positioned us and positioned the church to connect with each other, but connect with each other in terms of a redemptive community, but also a redemptive community that's looking in ministering the gospel, but a redemptive community that's also on a mission to see the gospel go out and connect to other people. Okay, my commercial's over. You ready? Eighth commandment. Now, Christian pollster, George Barna, he says this, 86% of the nation polled, 86% of them say that they completely satisfy the eighth commandment's Thou shall not steal mandate. Okay? So 86% of those polled today nationally believe that they completely satisfy that. Now, in the Christian community, in the Bible-believing, serious, uh, thoughtful, intentional Christians, church-going Christians, uh, the percentage is only 9% of evangelical Christians polled said they fall short of or break the Eighth Commandment. Okay? So according to national public opinion and according to church-wide public opinion, uh, everyone thinks they're doing a pretty good job with this commandment. In fact, the Eighth Commandment is the least taxing and least demanding of all the commandments according to everyone's opinion inside and outside the church. Everyone thinks they're doing a pretty good job with this. So the Eighth Commandment is the best-kept commandment of the Ten. So if there's one commandment that I possibly, I could have skipped on a series on the Ten Commandments because the need is not very high on this commandment. Because we're all doing such a good job on this commandment, I should have just left this one out. This is the runt of the litter. The Eighth Commandment, the Forgotten Commandment, the the Keepable Commandment. So welcome to the Eighth Commandment, sort of. Please stand for the hearing of God's Word. 
We're going to continue to read the whole passage that the commandments are framed in. So I hope that as you hear this, you see and look for, discover, chip away at new depths to the, the thickness of it. Okay, here we go. And God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Remember, that one is the first to break and that's why all the others are broken. Right there, okay? Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in earth beneath, the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'll visit iniquity on the fathers, on the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Next, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now remember, that means to treat God like a vapor. Okay? Four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you do your labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, female servant, livestock, or visitor, or stranger within your gates. Now remember the reasoning for this, verse 11, it's grounded back in what God did in the beginning, okay, when he made the six days and rested on his royal rest. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, made it holy. Five, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, donkey, anything that's your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the battle trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. Now, again, this is actually to produce what he's talking about. All right. Produce that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Now, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. We ask that you would send forth your spirit. We ask that you would open our eyes, that you would work deeply in our hearts, that you would reach us. Lord, we acknowledge that unless you reveal yourself to us, uh, we labor in vain trying to find you. So, Thank you that the giving of Jesus is proof that you delight to reveal yourself to us, that you reach and seek and come down to your people, that you delight and love to be in our midst. So fill us with your spirit, Lord. Work powerfully to your glory and to our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the textual terrain here is very small, isn't it? I mean, four words. It's not a long-winded passage at all. It's not a long-winded commandment at all, is it? Now, the immediate textual terrain might be small, but the contextual contours are really deep. 
Now, the contextual contours are the placement of this passage in the bigger storyline of the text. Okay, so anytime you come to a text and as we study the text, I hope we're learning on ways to actually get a proper understanding and application of the text, as well as the text and the preaching is an event in which Jesus shows up in a redemptive way and visits you and creates faith and new life and revives you and creates new obedience in your life. So here's the deal. When you come to a text, there's a near context and a far context. The near context is the immediate vicinity of the words, the grammar, the history, the culture, the original placement. The far context is making sure you understand the whole storyline of the Bible and where this particular piece fits in the major storyline of the Bible. Now, the storyline of the Bible is deep and huge, even though the immediate or near context is short-winded. Are you with me? And I think we've begun to see that in all the commandments, haven't we? It's not necessarily what we think just on the surface. There's massive payloads beneath the surface of these commandments, right? Okay, so you shall not steal actually goes way back to the very beginning of all things. You shall not steal is grounded in a garden way back in the beginning. It's grounded in a garden where heaven and earth once touched each other in a place that was called paradise. So this commandment is grounded in a garden, though its exhortation is in the realm of the world of sin. The actual context of this passage is way back before sin even invaded the world. So the substance of this commandment is in a place that's rooted before sin came into the world, the actual exhortation and command of it today is now taking place in a world that assumes sin. Don't steal, right? So here's the deal. I want you to listen to these ancient words before sin invaded and see if you can hear the substance of this command in these words. You ready? Here it is. These are very ancient words. You've got to listen very, very carefully because they're old. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Working and keeping the garden is a good thing. Producing and creating in the garden is a good thing. Personal ownership of a piece of the garden is a good thing. Possessing a piece of the kingdom of God to exert control over, care over, and concern about is a good thing. It's always been a good thing. So what I'm about to say is going to sound very, very selfish. It's going to be just like we did last week when I said something about the seventh commandment and everybody was shocked about that. It's going to sound very selfish. What I'm about to say is going to sound especially selfish. The chances are very, very high for the younger generation to say, that's selfish, sinful. And especially for those who are fed up with the consumerism and the the rampant materialism today, you're going to say, that's selfish and that's, that's sinful, Jeff. And especially those of us too, which is the fad today, as I'm noticing more and more as I hang out 
with the up-and-coming generation as I hang up in the academics that are nearby, that there's a real fascination with medieval spirituality and spiritual disciplines. Those of us that like that fascination are going to say to this what I'm about to say, that's selfish. That's self-centered. Do you all know what medieval spirituality is? Okay. It's an emphasis on the spirit over matter in the material world. It's an emphasis on an individualistic, monkish, inward spirituality, not a communal, sacramental, outward-facing, engaging the world, engaging people, engaging mission spirituality. Okay? Just so you know where we're coming from. All right, here it is. Here's what's going to sound selfish. Just like we said last week on the seventh commandment, sex is not sinful. Personal stuff is not sinful. Work, wealth, possessions, property is not inherently evil. It's not inherently anti-environmental. It's not inherently selfish. It's not inherently consumeristic. It's not inherently idolatrous. It's not inherently exploiting others. It's not inherently bad, right? Because I remember, according to what we just looked at, the substance, work is an actual calling from God. It was put in place before sin invaded the world. Work is a good thing. Wealth and possessions and stuff and creating your ownership of your own stuff happened way before sin invaded the world. It's a good thing. It's a calling from God. It images, imitates God. Because remember, the, the payload The root foundation of the Ten Commandments is not a bunch of abstract rules. It's not a bunch of downers. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't touch this. It's not that. It's rooted and it's grounded in a cosmic purpose called image bearing. God is like this. So he says, be like me. And in being like me, you're actually imaging, imitating, putting God on display, making him famous. And so doing, that's what life's all about. That's the definition of humanity. It's, it's being a real person. It's coming alive. That's why sin is so devastating. It's depersonalizing. It turns us not into humans and image bearers. It makes us beasts. That's why sin is so horrible. All right? So image bearing is certainly Godward, which we've seen in Commandments 1 through 4, right? Those all deal with God, putting God on display. It's Godward. They're religious. They're worship-directed, commandments 1 through 4. Image-bearing is certainly ethical or justice-directed or people-directed, commandments 5 through 10. But we need to remember, according to this commandment, is that image-bearing is also missional. We were made for mission. We were made for work. We were made to produce. We were made to create. We were made to own. We were made to have a piece of the kingdom. We were made to rule the kingdom of God. Okay? Just a couple chapters later, if you wanted to, later today, you flip and you'll see that what God ends up doing is he starts applying the eighth commandment to real life. They're called case laws. And what's really fascinating about these case laws is that they're applying it to people's personal stuff, their property, their possessions, their wealth, their ownership of all their stuff, their allotment in life. 
The Eighth Commandment is applied to. Listen to some of the things it says. It says, someone steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it and sells it. The person that does it must pay back five times. Five oxes, five sheep for the one that they stole and slaughtered. Now, if they didn't kill it, but they actually recover the animal, you've got to pay back two for the one you took. Okay? It also gives instructions that the thief must make restitution. And if he has nothing to make restitution with, guess what he's got to do? He's got to become that person's slave or servant. He's got to work it off. It also gives instructions on what to do if uh, your livestock grazes on someone else's land. How to deal with that. It also gives instructions on, let's say you start a fire because you're doing something with your field, but it leaps your field, jumps into someone else's field, and destroys their property and their possessions. And it, it gives you instructions on how you deal with that. It also tells you what to do if a thief's caught in the act of stealing gold and silver from your house. The bottom line is personal stuff is not sinful. The bottom line is personal stuff and possessions and property and work and wealth and ownership is a part of being human. Imaging God. Okay? Now, I know some of you are not convinced... That's why I'm going to turn it up a little bit more and make you more mad. This is why extreme socialism, collectivism, and statism is so devastating. Not because the 11th commandment is capitalism, which it's not. And some of you think it is. <laughs> capitalism is a good thing. It's, it's coming out of common grace, wisdom, working things in the world. But it's not the Bible's economic policy. All right? Now, the reason why statism and, and communism and severe socialism, collectivism is so devastating is not because they have failed everywhere they've practiced it. The reason why is that they undermine image bearing, they undermine work, they undermine ownership. They undermine calling. They dehumanize. They steal from others. They break the eighth commandment. So work and wealth is so entwined in image bearing that God says, you shall not steal. Okay? All right, the point of the Eighth Commandment is this. If we're going to state it negatively, because that's the way the commandment does, right? It states it negatively. So if we're going to state it negatively, we'd say this. Do not steal what doesn't belong to you. Do not steal what God has entrusted to someone else. If we were to state it positively, we'd say this. Trust God for your provisions. Your work, your wealth, your possessions, your property, your stuff. Okay? Now, do you see in both of these points the hidden hand of God in it? Do you see that? The hidden hand of God is that God controls everybody's lot in life. And so he controls it. And he gives and takes as the king who owns everything. So to steal from someone is ultimately to steal from God, the one who controls and gives everyone's lot in life. Okay? All right, now, 
How do you practically apply thou shall not steal? I mean, obviously, most of us, I mean, the, the common perception today is that the, the application of it, the most direct application of it, doesn't apply to 86% of us. I mean, we think we're doing a pretty good job at this. So this seems to not have deep-reaching, convicting, and illuminating, and revealing who we are power in it. Well, how do you apply it? How do we practically apply it in our lives? Well, you all know I have a long history of playing games with my kids. And I told you shamefully about when they were really young, I made them believe some really unbelievable stuff like I told them I was Superman. And I didn't, it wasn't with a wink. I kept this one going for a while, got my wife in on it. So much so that um, they believed, because I told them that when they went to bed, I went to work. (laughs) And every night we'd find a new story about how Superman took care of the bad guys that night. Now, I'm so glad we were homeschooling at this time because I cannot imagine my kids going to school, telling their classmates, telling their teachers very vivid stories of their dad being Superman and very vividly taking care of the bad guys. Can you imagine? So so glad that's not happening. Well, nowadays I do different kind of games. One of them that's going on right now is when I wrestle around with them, I grab their collarbone <laughs> and I say... Hey, did you know it only takes two pounds of pressure to break this thing? And then I'd go, I'd put some pressure on it, and I'd go, that's a pound. That's a pound and a half. And they're like, ah! You know, they're screaming and trying to get away. Another thing that I did a long time ago when they were really little is I had this test. I wanted to test their selfishness. I wanted to test their giving capacity. I wanted to see how selfish are they. Are they really children of Adam? I wanted to figure that out. I wanted to, I want to prove original sin. Is it true? So I picked the peak testing time, which was dessert time. Oh yeah. And now dessert time. I remember my first test was on my firstborn cow. And while he's eating his cookie, I said, cow, can I have your cookie? Sure, dad. (laughs) Without hesitation. I feel horrible. (laughs) I shamefully give the cookie back. My wife gives me the dirtiest look. (laughs) Now with the other two girls, it was the same. Sure, Dad. And I began to wonder, are my children children of Adam? I know what I would do. (laughs) Well, that's when Knox became and reached the age of cookie accountability. (laughs) And I said, Knox, can I have your cookie? And he slowly looked around at everybody eating their cookie. (laughs) And all the kids' eyes were on him because they all passed the test. And he said, Cal will give you his cookie. (laughs) See, Knox had a strong, a strong sense of personal ownership. That is the first application, believe it or not. The very first specific application historically in this text is the right to personal ownership. Personal ownership, work and wealth and your stuff is the playground for imitating God. It's meant to be your tools of imitation. You are a prince and a princess 
a trustee and a steward of the king. You're meant to rule. There are two other historical applications that um, get a little more uncomfortable, so we'll try to move through this pretty quick. The first way is the manward or horizontal path. This is stealing from others. Now, the, the Heidelberg Catechism does really the best job of kind of expositing this, so I'm going to follow its outline here. The first, you know, is pretty much everyone gets outright theft and thievery. Everybody gets that. Everybody gets that so much so that they say, I'm not guilty of it. Very rarely is there outright theft and thievery. Although when you take a look at 80% of the population and then you look at the thievery statistics, I don't know how that matches up, but somehow it matches up in people's eyes. Okay? But the other, the other part that they highlight is called fraud or cheating. And this is what they say. The catechism says, cheating or swindling a neighbor by schemes made to appear honest and legit, like inaccurate measurements. Here's some of those. Maybe it applies to you. I don't know. Cheating on your taxes. Cheating in school. Cheating your employer with time, with money, with your work ethic, with your laziness. The employer cheating his employees. Not a fair wage. Unfair work conditions. Inhumane work conditions and expectations and demands. You got a family? I don't care. Others is cheating those in need while giving the appearance that you really care. You don't give money to them. You don't give a relationship to them. Your time, opportunity. There's the unjust buying and selling. In other words, you're, you overcharge your product. Those of you that have a product, you're overcharging. Is tuition at Baylor overcharging? underpaying you think he did really good by bringing that price down on him and you underpaid catechism points that out as disobeying this commandment others counterfeit money the other day I was doing a registration for a car and I gave them a significant bill and they took this pen and went across it and I go what are you doing it was a test of its counterfeit I go, for real? She goes, yep. I said, what do you, just get a Sharpie? I mean, what are you doing? No, it's a special counterfeit pen. I said, okay. Charging excessive interest is concluded in here. Historically as well, the Heidelberg and the, and the Westminster, they talk about a relational angle of stealing. So you've got the property angle of stealing from somebody, but you've got a relational angle of stealing dignity from somebody. So they'll talk about things like stealing someone's reputation, their respect, their dignity, their honor, their time, their opportunities, their success. And biblically, those sins that are talked about that do this are things like slander and gossip, anger and hatred, bitterness, superiority, pride, comparing yourself, competing, Putting yourself above someone. Others are envy and jealousy. The refusal to reconcile, the refusal to forgive, the refusal to restore a relationship is stealing someone's dignity. So you have an angle that deals with the possessions, stealing someone's possessions, and you have the angle of stealing someone's dignity. Now I wonder what the percentages are on how we do in that. 
And it's fascinating. You know what's fascinating? Remember the case laws that we talked about that come later in Exodus? You know what's fascinating about them? Is that the case laws are intentionally forcing the thief and the one that the thief sinned against to interact with each other. Did you see that? I mean, what's fascinating is that, yes, God is very, very concerned about your personal ownership of things, but he's even more concerned about your relationship to one another. And so what he does is he says, look, he forces the thief and the victim to work it out. Oh, you don't have enough to pay back? Well, you, you got you to gotta work for me. I got to have this thief as a servant. They're forced to interact and deal with each other. They're forced to learn and work together over what's just with each other. Because the hope is that they experience reconciliation. So the heart of God in the Eighth Commandment, when we're talking about horizontally, is, is the image of God in his justice imitated in property, possessions, and relationships. Isn't that fascinating? I thought it was. All right. Historically, the third or second specific path is the God word of the vertical, and that's stealing from God, and this is where it gets a little blunt. Malachi 3.8 says it very bluntly. God speaking, will a man rob God? Question mark. Yet you rob me, God says in the text. And then everybody there is saying, how do we rob you? And notice this is like a catechism question because the, the text comes right back and says, but you ask, how do we rob you? That's scary. And then God supplies the answer by not giving me your tithes. The Old Testament tithe was a minimum proportion of a person's income. It doesn't matter if they got income monthly or they got income in a year. It's just whatever the, the proportion of the income of a year to that person, that proportion, minimum proportion, 10%, was given directly to official work of the Lord, to official redemptive ministry. And in that day, that was found in Israel. In this day, it's found in the church. Now, what's fascinating is that the Old Testament tithe highlights that one's whole lot is of God. That one's whole lot is God's. That we are, as we just saw earlier, stewards. We're trustees. We're sons and daughters. We're princesses and princes. We're not the king. And so the Old Testament tithe, what it was designed to do, was to acknowledge that God has the whole lot. And then it went one step further and says, of this whole lot, 10% is marked out in a very unique way that specifically and only the Lord's, only for his redemptive work. And that's where the 10% came from. So the eighth commandment is not a specific sermon on tithing, but it is a warning. It's a warning that when you don't give regularly to God's official redemptive ministry, which today is the church, you steal from him. Now, the eighth commandment does not solve, because many of you I know right now, your mind's running and you're saying, okay, well, so do we do the tithe today? Is it 10%? Is it more than 10%? Is it less than 10%? The eighth commandment doesn't solve that one. Not at all. What it solves is this, though. Is, is giving to the work of the Lord, to gospel ministry, optional. 
No way. That's what it solves. All right. The statistics are stunning, and it's going to be uncomfortable for just a, two more minutes. Hang in there. The statistics are stunning. 20% of all, if the, if the polls are true from Barna and everyone that does the giving, and I even saw an article in the paper in, in uh, USA Today this past week, if the statistics are true, 20% of the folks in church regularly give. 80% do not. So if, the, if, if you have a 100-member church, 20 give 80 do not. If the statistics are true, that means that 20% support the whole work of the ministry. So if you got, if these statistics are right, you got 100 people in the church, 20 people finance the work of gospel ministry. 20 people. And then what these statistics do, I've seen numbers where people are talking and you got these folks, are, How, what do we do about this? How do we? And what they started doing is they started saying, they started playing with the numbers. They started saying stuff like, well, what if, what would really happen if the church locally and as a whole, it moved from 20 to 30? And it went from 30 to 40. What if it went to 60% in the church? What would happen? And they started projecting and playing with numbers and saying, what if? And it, was just, it, it blows your mind. There would not be, according to the statistics, any missionary coming back on furlough asking for money. The statistics were phenomenal. There'd be an increased gospel ministry would be generated. There would be more proclamation of the word, more gospel ministry going forth within the church and outside the church. There'd be a greater endeavor and a greater daringness locally and globally to start mission works. There'd be increased mercy ministries. There'd be increased outreaches and missions. There'd be funding for more church plants and missionaries. In fact, there'd be more funding for what they want to do today, which is sending teams to plant churches and teams to go to mission fields because when they go alone, statistics are they don't last five years. Those are the statistics. Church plants mostly don't make it today. I don't know if you knew that. I see it all the time in the Southwest Church Planning Network. Needed facilities would be taken care of. Increased nurture and care and training of youth and gospel-driven youth ministries. There'd be increased pastoral care and counseling because there'd be addition of trained and equipped, called ordained people in those roles. There'd be increased administrative needs and angles that creatively meet the supportive needs of uh, frontline gospel ministry. I mean, I can go on. Buildings paid off. There'd be an increased culture of joyful giving, sacrificial giving, meaningful giving, communal giving, expectant giving, daring giving. There'd be increased giving to the poor. And my question as I read this is, good night, what if Redeemer broke the 20% rule? Wow. All right. Let's move on. Our trouble with the Eighth Commandment, though, stems from a vice that we all struggle with. And it's fascinating. We all struggle with this vice, whether we're poor and destitute or whether we're at Wall Street or we're one of the whipping boys today in the, in the media and the culture of work at McDonald's or Walmart. Right? 
we all have the vice of greed. And we have the vice of greed more than we realize it because here, here's what I'm talking about. We look at our wealth and we look at our work and we look at our property and we look at our possessions and we look at all of our stuff not as work, wealth, property, possessions. We look at them as cosmic suppliers of our identity, our significance, and our security. I could say it this way. We don't trust God for our provisions. We trust in our provisions. Does that make sense? So what's happening is, greed is trusting in our provisions, not trusting God for our provisions. So greed is trusting in our provisions to be God for us. Trusting in our provisions to give us significance and security, to give us happiness and make our lives prosperous and peaceful. And so when that happens, that's greed. And when that happens, we handle our stuff not as if it's work and wealth and property and possessions and ownership. We handle it as if it's God. And that's why Jesus says, you cannot have two masters, right? You'll love the one or hate the other. Now, we steal from others because we have, we defraud, we do all the stuff we talked about. We steal because something greater than God has become our significance and our security, and we must have it. We must have it. I mean, even outright thievery, it's like, they got to have it. We got to have it. Or we talk about the relational angles. You got to have it. You got to have it. And you can't do without it, so you got to get it. That's how that works. Also, we steal from God because our... Our possessions and our, our wealth and our money and our, our ownership, it becomes our significance and our security. So I, I, our significance and security with God is so small that we can't pry open our hands and get rid of it. So what's the way out? And this is what we're going to end on. Here's the way out. The Apostle Paul gives us the way out. It's in our text even. That's fascinating how this continues to happen, Virginia. Uh, He's writing to the church in Corinth about not stealing but giving. And this is what he says. Notice that he doesn't give an ethical principle. He doesn't even quote the Eighth Commandment and then exhort the congregation in Corinth. I mean, if you want to help them to not steal and you want to help them to be generous giving people, he doesn't give an ethical principle. He doesn't quote the Eighth Commandment. He does something radically different. Look what he does. Listen to him. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. There it is. The prince of paradise left it all. The God-man didn't cling to his infinite riches. His, His provisions that were priceless He didn't cling to them. He let them go. If he clings to his infinite riches, we die in our spiritual poverty. That's the bottom line. If he clings to his infinite treasures, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's no admittance into God's family. There's no righteousness. There's no acceptance. 
There's no priceless provisions of the eternal kind. There's no love of God. One preacher put it this way, that was the choice. If he stayed rich, we die poor. The choice was easy. Paul says it was driven by grace. Did you catch that? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament word for grace is hesed. You know what hesed means? It means surprising, shocking, radical grace. It means unfailing love. It means massive mercy. The stunning, what's stunning is that the prince of paradise, the priceless provision of paradise, was crucified between two thieves. That's stunning. It's stunning that the prince of paradise became one of them. The prince of paradise became poor and became a thief. So Jesus' poverty made thieves rich. So when we take to our heart, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that we by his poverty might become rich, when that starts taking root in our heart, you know what happens? Our earthly provisions our work and our wealth and our property and our possessions, they cease to supply us with our significance and our security. When we take that into our heart, that His poverty makes us rich, when that starts getting a hold of us and we start chipping away at that and finding the depths of it and the beauty and the wonder of it, we start trusting in it and we start moving our heart off of Our stuff being our significance and our security. And our significance and our security is now being supplied by the Savior, the rich one, who became poor for our sake. And you know what happens? When that begins to happen, we start trusting God with our provisions because they're not our significance and our security anymore. We trust Him for it. And we become outrageously generous people. Why? Because we actually begin to imitate the most generous one who, though he was rich, left it all and became poor. So the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Do not take what doesn't belong to you. Trust God for your provisions. How do you do this? How? By getting and taking into your heart that Jesus' poverty makes you rich. Amen.